Instead of a story to open our time together today, I want to open with a question, actually a series of questions. Starts with the question, how are you doing? Like, like really, how are you doing? When you look around at the world in general and everything that's going on, and then when you look at what's going on in your own life, how are you feeling? If, if we set up a continuum here and on, on one side, you would answer, I'm feeling tired and I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling stressed and I've got challenges in my life that I don't know what to do with and I can't hear God's voice and I don't know what God is up to in the midst of the circumstances I'm in. And on the other hand, you would say, I'm at peace and I have joy in my heart and I'm hearing from the Lord and I might have challenges in my life, but I feel like I know how to handle them and I can see what God is orchestrating in the world today. Where would you put yourself in between those two extremes? Maybe a scale of zero to 10. How are you feeling? Because there's a lot to keep track of these days, isn't there? Uh, I've noticed this in my own mind and in my own heart lately. There are these, these, these pressures and these things to think about. And it can be hard to maintain that, that joy and that peace that Jesus offers to us in the midst of it all. I made a list this week of five things, and there are more than these five things that are going on in the world that impact all of us. And this isn't even to list the things going on in your life that might be challenging for you. A few of them are COVID-related, of course. Uh, and so one of, is the ongoing debate about COVID vaccine. And, and you don't need me to tell you that there are polarized opinions on this kind of thing. And unfortunately, all too often, there's not a lot of grace going either way in this kind of discussion. There's ongoing government restrictions that make it hard for us to live life in the way that we want to live it. And yes, we've lived with this for a year already, but the impacts of this are going to go on forever. It occurred to me this week, this is probably not a new thought for you, but this pandemic is going to define our lives, a lot of us. And some people are going to live with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and other mental health challenges because of what we've gone through in this last year for the rest of their lives. The impact is going to carry on. Of course, then that, that goes to the third thing, church gatherings and reopening, and what does that mean for the church? And, and you might know that there's some opportunity for churches to meet outdoors these days, but there's some pretty severe restrictions around what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And so we keep talking about that as, as staff and as elders, and what should we be doing as a church? Uh, last week, another thing came to the forefront, Bill C-10. Have you heard about this? The, the government is talking about this bill, which on the surface is about providing more Canadian content online, but there are fears and concerns about what it might mean for freedom of speech. And so uh, the, the, the most extreme kind of concern about this is that our free speech and what we post online will be censored eventually by the government. And so there's all kinds of conversation going on around that, and, and it's an important conversation. Uh, conversations around racism and justice continue on. You, you might know that a couple weeks ago, the police officer involved in the George Floyd incident last year was convicted of murder, and so that brought that back up to the, the forefront, and that conversation never really left the forefront, and it's still something that we need to be thinking about. Big, big issues. Big things to think about. But here's the question I want to follow all of that up with. Are these things or other things in your life distracting you from what God really wants to say to you these days? Are all of these things distracting us collectively from what God wants to do? Now, each of those things is important to talk about and have conversation about, so I'm not diminishing those issues at all. 
But I felt a really heavy burden on my heart lately to pray that the church of Jesus Christ will keep its eyes firmly fixed on Christ and then allow that focus to influence how we react to all of these other things. I felt a burden that we don't make any of these issues the main thing these days, but instead keep our eyes on Jesus, who will then give us the wisdom to know how to handle all of these things. It's a question of where our attention is, and it's, a, it's a, a especially applicable, these questions, as we read Daniel chapter 3. And here's the main idea that we're going to discover today as we study Daniel chapter 3 and as we think about these big things going on in the world is simply this. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we find the faith to persevere. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we find the faith to persevere. Now, here's a distinction I want to make. When we read the book of Daniel, we can, we can make this, this um, application or take this application from it. We can look at the book and we've entitled this sermon series, Stand Out. And we can look at all of these instances in Daniel 1, where Daniel and his friends stand out and say, we're not going to eat this kind of food. In Daniel chapter 3, where Daniel and his friends, or or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, rather, go to the fiery furnace. Or Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel says, I know I'm not supposed to pray, but I'm going to pray anyways, even if there's consequences, he goes to the lion's den. We can read those stories and we can think, we need to be like Daniel. We need to stand out. We need to to, to, to stand out from, from society at large because of what we believe. And yes, that's true, but it's actually not the main point that Daniel's trying to tell us. Daniel's not telling you to be like him, because if that's the takeaway, we might start as Christians looking around for opportunities to be, to, to, to be contrarian and to stand up on certain issues. No, Daniel's main point is that God is in control. And when you keep your focus on God, he'll give you the strength to persevere through any circumstance that you might find yourself. And if you don't keep that as the main thing, you're not going to have the strength to stand up when Jesus invites you to stand out on a given topic or issue It's only when we keep our eyes on God that we have the strength to persevere. Daniel is not the hero of the book of Daniel. God is the hero. Over and over again, God is the hero. He is in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. And so it's when we keep our eyes fixed on God that we have the strength to persevere in these instances where we might need to stand out. So two halves to this sermon here today. The first is a question, what do you worship? And the second is the idea of faith under pressure. How do we develop faith under pressure? So let's start with what do you worship? The, the story is about worship. Nebuchadnezzar sits up, sets up this image of gold 90 feet tall. Now, uh, biblical scholars aren't sure exactly where this was, but somewhere in the region, they found these like 20 foot high mounds of earth that serve as, seem to have served as pedestals for these kinds of of, of things that would be, be put up that people would have to worship. So Nebuchadnezzar makes this thing. It's, it's 90 feet tall. Now remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue and the head was made of gold and then there was different materials all the way down. And the interpretation of that dream was that these different materials represented different kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar's was the kingdom made of gold, the head of the statue made of gold. So instead of Nebuchadnezzar understanding that dream and thinking, okay, my kingdom is temporary and I'm only here for a time, he sets up this image of gold as if to to establish the permanence of his kingdom and say, everyone will bow down to this statue. My kingdom will endure if I can keep everyone 
uh, worshiping here. Now, whether or not this statue was an image of Nebuchadnezzar or an image of a god, the friends here understand that it was meant to elicit a response of worship to Babylonian gods. It's a question of idolatry. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego see that right away. They probably thought of the Ten Commandments. The first two read like this, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they remember this. We are not to worship any other gods, so we will not bow down to this statue. The the issue here is about worship. The verb worship appears 11 times and the verb to serve appears five times. So they understand and Daniel wants us to understand as he writes this story that this is about worship and service of another God. And because our God demands total allegiance, this is entirely inappropriate for these friends. Now, you, you may have noticed as this story was read, there's a lot of repetition in the language, right? So we read about these, these people, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. We read that a couple of times, and we read about these uh, instruments, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. We hear that four or five times. And we hear uh, other languages, that the, the verb to set up occurs nine times, like Nebuchadnezzar set up this idol. All of this repetition and all of of these verbs are meant to show us that this is a human invention right here. And it's surrounded by human, man-made, created pomp and circumstance around this. The the language is, is, one commentator suggests, almost sarcastic. Like if I'll just, I'll just repeat all of these words and the pomp and the circumstance and everything that's, that's been created around this image, which has been created by a human... And all of this kind of sarcasm and repetition is meant to lead us, the reader, to think there's no way they're going to worship this thing. This idol is a complete farce. It doesn't make any sense at all for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to this. Obviously, it should not be worshipped. That's what we're supposed to understand as the reader from the language that Daniel uses. Now, let's talk about idolatry in our own lives for a moment. Because here's the thing about idols. This story makes it clear that this statue is an idol, but idols in our lives rarely put up their hands and say, yes, I'm over here. And if you'll just do this and this, then I'll leave. You know, I don't need to be here. I'll, I'll take off. That's, that's not how idols work in our lives. Idols in our lives exist behind carefully crafted rationalizations and justifications and half-truths, which allow us to keep these idols in our lives because they provide us with things like comfort and control. We don't easily want to get rid of them, and we don't even easily see them in our own lives most of the time. We need spiritual sight. We deceive ourselves all the time about the presence of these idols. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. We can easily be blinded to the reality of these idols that are controlling us in our lives. And we can only dismantle them when we see them for the farce that they are. 
but we don't see them like that very easily. Uh, Tom Nichols, in his book, The Death of Expertise, talks about confirmation bias. And you can uh, think about confirmation bias in all kinds of ways in our society right now, but I want to apply it to identifying idols in our lives. This is what he says. He says, it's the nature of confirmation bias itself to dismiss all contradictory evidence as irrelevant. So my evidence is always the rule and your evidence is always a mistake or an exception. It's impossible then to argue with this kind of explanation because by definition, it's never wrong. Okay, we can see this in the debates that are going on in the world today. And we always like to see it in other people before we recognize it in ourselves. But it makes it hard for us to evaluate uh, our own lives. Okay, I'll give you a lighthearted example of this, okay? Uh, I love working with our staff. Our staff loves working together. We've been having a good-natured, mostly good-natured debate in the last couple of months about a very important question. The question is this. When you're typing and you get to the end of a sentence and you get to a period, do you put two spaces or do you put one space after, before you start the next sentence? Um, this came about, if I'm remembering right, it came about because Graham, our sound guy, I sent him an email. And uh, I, of course, used two spaces because that's how I was trained and that's just, you know, what's right. And so he responded back and said, why are you using so many spaces? And so I immediately got defensive and thought, well, two spaces is the right way to do things. So I jumped on Google and I said, two spaces are one. Now, most of the articles at the top of the page had one space as their, their, um, their answer, but I was persistent and I kept going until I found an article that said two spaces is better. In fact, I even found a study that said people could read faster when people left two spaces after a period because they could see where the breaks in the action were. Justified and vindicated, I copied the article and sent it to Graham. Well, a few minutes later, I had an article in my inbox that was arguing exactly the opposite. I read through it, but dismissed it as completely irrelevant because I already had my position um, figured out in my mind. We took it to the staff, and I'm in a small minority of people who use two spaces still. Now, can I tell you a secret? This is just between you and me. Don't tell the staff. Certainly don't tell Graham. I know, and I could admit to you, that the standard these days is one space after a period, okay? This is between you and me. One space is the correct answer these days. They changed it. It used to be two. Now it's one. But because I've already got my preconceived idea of what it should be, I will never give up this battle. And to Graham, I will say it is two spaces and it should be two spaces. Okay, that's a lighthearted example that doesn't really matter that much in real life. But you can tell that when we talk about more important things and when we evaluate the state of our own souls to look for idols that lurk beneath the surface, we can easily explain them away. Because we don't want to acknowledge that we might be wrong. We don't want to acknowledge that they might be there when we don't want them to be. We need spiritual eyesight to identify idols. Idols can be all kinds of things. The definition of an idol is something that we love more than we love God, something that we turn to before we turn to God to find comfort or to find hope or to find peace. So, I mean, we could talk about money and how money is easily an idol in our lives today, and and we can easily justify, yeah, I'm saving up for that really expensive thing because I, I, I really need it, right? Like, if I had it, life would be better, We can justify that to ourselves pretty easily. Or we can say, you know, pornography is not an idol in my life. It's not a big problem. I could deal with it whenever I wanted to. 
or success, climbing the corporate ladder. That's not driving my behavior. I'm just trying to be a good employee and I'll take the promotion when I can get it. We, we could do this with all kinds of different things. I want to I um, suggest one thing. I want to throw it past you. I wish we were having a back and forth conversation at this point because this is something I've been wondering about for a while now when it comes to idolatry and how COVID has revealed something that maybe we, we hadn't seen uh, as clearly before COVID. I've been wondering if COVID has revealed to us in North America, to us in Canada, uh, including us in the church, if individual freedom has become an idol in our society. Now, there's a nuance to be made here, okay? Just like of these other things, or a lot of other things that could be idols in our lives, not all of them are bad things. Freedom is not a bad thing. If we took a poll right now and said, would you like to live in a society that is more free or less free? We would probably have 100%, including myself, who voted more free. The freedoms that we enjoy in our society are good things. And when there are concerns about our freedoms, such as Bill C-10, I think we're well within our democratic right to exercise freedom of speech and to speak to those things. But I wonder if individual freedom has become an idol in our lives. And of course, whenever we talk about idols, it's easier to talk about someone else's idols and not our own. So I need to look at myself with this. I noticed this in myself a few weeks ago when these new travel restrictions came in in BC. You're not supposed to go anywhere. And uh, I've told you before that my family has access to a family cabin just outside Merritt. And we had planned to be there twice during this period of time where these travel restrictions came into play. My first three thoughts when I heard about these went like this. The first one um, was this. Well, that's kind of silly. Like, who made that rule? I can drive to the cabin and drive back without stopping. I won't see anybody except the people I bring with me. How am I spreading COVID by going to the cabin? This is silly. The second one was, I wonder if I can come up with an essential reason why I need to go there. Is there some reason I can come up with that would give me a justified excuse to go? And the third thought was, I wonder if there are side roads that I could go around the roadblock and then continue on my way. It wasn't until my fourth thought that I thought maybe I shouldn't go. Now, COVID aside, that's often how I react and I think how we as a society react when it feels like our freedom is being pushed against or limited in some ways. We try to figure out a way around it because we value that freedom. But when I look at the New Testament, I don't see a huge emphasis on individual rights and freedoms. Right? Paul does say in Galatians 5 that it's for freedom that Christ has set you free, but he's not talking about individual civic rights. He's talking about spiritual freedom, freedom from sin, freedom to live a holy life. Freedom from the law, which the Old Testament law, which uh, prescribed these ways to work towards God's favor. That's the freedom Paul is talking about. In fact, he says later on, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And actually that verb serve is enslave yourself to one another in love. In other words, give up your freedom to serve other people. Jesus gave up the, the freedom he experienced in heaven to come and die for you and I. So I'm just asking the question, and I'm going to leave it with you to take it to the Holy Spirit and say, has freedom become an idol in our lives that is distracting us from what God really wants us to focus on? Is freedom something that is, has become too important to us as Christ followers? 
Because let me say this, if, let's just say Bill C-10 is the complete disaster that people fear that it will be, and there's censorship, and even these online services are taken off the internet, and we can't post whatever we want to post on the internet, we of all people have the most reason to cling on to hope, to not lose hope, because of what we know to be true about the character of God, and that he is sovereignly in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. So more important even than what happens with Bill C-10 is then how we engage about Bill C-10 and the hope that we have, the confidence that we have that God will give us the strength to persevere. Certainly it, will ha- it would have an impact if it turns out like that. Certainly it would impact the way that we live our lives. Absolutely. No downplaying that. But we have every reason to have confidence in the Lord that he will give us strength to persevere And that in the end, he will judge the wicked and reward the righteous. So we have the the perseverance then to work through it. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't camp out on this freedom idea. You know, verse 16, uh, they're they're in front of Nebuchadnezzar and they, they don't say, hey, my constitutional rights are being offended here or this is bias or you're out of line. They actually say this, um, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter because their focus was on God. Their sight was set on God. If we're thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand because we're not ultimately pleased, uh, um, concerned about pleasing the king. We're ultimately concerned about pleasing God. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. The, the issue here again is worship. Okay, an incorrect application to this passage would be to say that these three are reacting against the government system. Remember, they're part of the government. They're administrators in Babylon. Their issue is worship. We will not worship your God. We will not worship your system. We will only worship the Lord. Psalm 135 has this to say about idolatry. Uh, Starting in verse 15, the idols of the nation are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. (laughs) If you trust in an idol, you will become like it, unable to see or speak or hear. Your spiritual sight will be severely compromised if your focus is on an idolatrous thing or an idolatrous idea. So I'm going to give you two specific action steps that I want you to take this week, okay? This is the second one. I'll give you the first one uh, at the end. I know that's backwards. The first one is this. I want you to spend 15 minutes alone with the Lord this week and just asking him to give you spiritual sight to see any idols that exist in your life. Holy Spirit, reveal to me, reveal to us the idols that we are clinging to, the idols that we are justifying and explaining away and that need to be uprooted and thrown out. God alone is worthy of our worship. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we find the faith to persevere. So let's talk about then faith under pressure. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego certainly experienced a lot of pressure, at least four kinds of pressure. There is pressure from authority. King Nebuchadnezzar was telling them, this is what you have to do. There is the pressure of conformity. Everyone else was doing it. 
right? If you grew up in the 90s and remember the VeggieTales version of this story, Rackshack and Benny, you remember that scene where there's this big bunny that's been built and they were supposed to bow down to it. And there's this scene on this, this plane and everyone else immediately falls on their face and there's these three guys standing there looking at each other. They stood out. Everyone else is doing it. Have you been in that situation before? You're the only one. So pressure from authority, pressure from conformity, there's pressure from intimidation. These, they're, they're told on. <laughs> Some people come to the king and say, hey, these guys aren't doing what you said. And then there's the pressure from the, the uh, consequence or the, the threat of a consequence. You're going to be killed if you don't ultimately comply. Lots of pressure that these guys are facing. Larry Osborne writes about the importance of perspective when we're in the midst of all kinds of pressure. And writing about today, he says, the increasing moral and cultural decay of our society is not something God was unprepared for. It's not something that's beyond his power to redeem. He has a plan. It's not going to be thwarted. God is sovereign over all of it. That's the perspective that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego carried with them. And that's the perspective we must carry if we're going to stand out, if we're going to be able to hold true to what God is asking of us. Now, but, but keep this in mind. Standing out and having the, the faith to withstand pressure doesn't mean that God will always deliver you the way that you want to be delivered. There's a happy ending at the, at the end of this story. But there's not always happy endings at the end of these kinds of stories. So let me ask you this. Would this story change? Would God's sovereignty be questioned if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had died in that fire? I think the answer has to be no. God still knows what he's doing if we have to face the consequences of standing out. Hebrews 11 makes this clear. Hebrews 11 is a fascinating chapter. It goes through all kinds of biblical characters who had to stand out because of their faith and had to withstand all kinds of pressure. But at the end of the chapter, it moves towards people who had to stand out and had to withstand pressure but didn't receive the reward. He starts in verse 35 by saying, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by, stone, by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. A faith that can withstand pressure understands that there might be consequences that we have to face. But because our perspective is solely on God, we find the faith, we find the strength to persevere in the midst of it. Too often our focus is on our security, on our safety, when God's focus is on our worship and on our faithfulness, on the purity of our heart. Dale Davis writes this about these three friends. They were unsure of God's circumstantial will, whether they would escape. But they were sure of God's revealed will. You shall have no other gods before me. They knew what God's word clearly said. They didn't know how the circumstance was going to work out. 
but they knew where they needed to take their stand. There was uncertainty in how God was going to come through. You know, they say that to Nebuchadnezzar. Even if he doesn't come through, we're not going to serve you. Listen, if you have all the answers on everything, if there is no uncertainty as to how to respond to some of these things going on in the world, chances are you're worshiping yourself. And the worship of self is a dangerous place to be. Faith allows for uncertainty in the circumstances that we find ourselves, but has absolute confidence that the God we trust will see us through. Even if that means having an eternal perspective and saying my deliverance will come on the other side of death, God will see us through. So Dale Davis says, these men give us a full balanced picture of faith. Faith knows the power of God. He is able. It guards the freedom of God, but if not, and holds the truth of God, we will not serve other gods. There are some in our day, however, who would not be happy with this kind of faith. In their view, faith involves being far more sure about God's ways. Their kind of faith is allergic to any kind of uncertainty about details. If they could rewrite the chapter, they would have the friends declare, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to call down God's deliverance. We're going to bind the fire. But they don't. Faith doesn't predict God's ways. It simply holds to God's word. Faith obeys God's truth. It does not manipulate God's hand. Faith is not required to plot God's course, but only to obey God's command. God will provide for us what we need when we need it. And Larry Osborne points out, it's not like we can have a a storehouse where we can pack away extra faith that we can somehow withdraw when we need more of it. Now, God in the moment when we need faith, when we need strength, provides it for us so we can take the next step. Even when we're not sure what kind of deliverance God will provide for us. And the last thing that helps us to keep this perspective on God's sovereignty when we're under pressure is the idea that Jesus shows up with us in our difficulty. Right? Nebuchadnezzar sees four men walking around in the fire. One of them looks like the son of the gods. It's not clear from the language whether this was an angel or a, a, a pre-incarnate form of, of Jesus himself. The, the idea is the same either way. God shows up with us in the midst of our challenges. In the midst of our difficulty, Jesus is walking with us. Now, I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it feels like we're on our own. And in those moments where we can't feel Jesus' presence, we need to call to mind the the promise of Jesus that he will never leave us or forsake us. We need to call to mind that that Jesus won't abandon us. Tim Keller likes to say this, and I think this is brilliant. If Jesus didn't abandon you when he was about to go to the cross, when he was about to suffer and die on your behalf, if he didn't abandon you then, he's certainly not going to abandon you now. And we can look at the example of Jesus, which stands out above any other religion. Uh, Jesus is a God who suffers himself. And so you can ask of God, does God know what it's like to be abandoned by a friend? The answer is yes, he does. Does Jesus know what it's like to feel the pressure to conform? Yes, absolutely. Does Jesus know what it's like to suffer? He does so intimately. 
And so even in the midst of your challenge, even in the midst of your trial, Jesus walks alongside. Jesus shows up in the middle of it. Okay, so here's your second piece of homework, which is actually the first. Spend 15 minutes alone with Jesus this week, simply worshiping him. You could do that in song. You could do that in prayer. You could do that by reading the Psalms, which praise God's name. Why is this important? Because when we focus our eyes on Jesus, our perspective on everything else clarifies. When we keep our perspective on the sovereignty of God, he gives us the strength we need to address the other issues in our lives. And church, this is my biggest prayer for us these days, is that our focus would be in the right place so that God himself can guide us to where we need to go. So spend 15 minutes worshiping God and then spend 15 minutes asking God's spirit to reveal idolatry in your life. So half an hour is what I'm asking. You can break it up if you'd like. But start with worship because worship also allows us to have the proper perspective on our idols. If we're thinking about how great God is, we'll be able to see how weak the idols in our lives actually are. When we keep our our perspective, our focus on God, he helps us to find the strength and the faith to persevere under pressure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who is worthy of our worship. There is no one and there is nothing else that deserves our praise. When you invite us to total allegiance, it's only because you are completely and totally worth it. Lord, we recognize that in our hearts we allow idols to exist far too often. And so we are inviting you to reveal those things to me and to us, to our church, to our world, that we might dethrone what ought not to be on the throne and that we might follow you as the king of our hearts, the king of our lives. Thank you for your presence with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fiery furnace. And thank you for your presence with us in whatever it is that we walk through. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.